0: Welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast by Scott L. Wyatt, President of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's Podcast, where you will find both the audio and a written transcript for today's podcast. Hi again everyone and welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring Scott L. Wyatt, the president of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. I'm your host Steve Meredith and with me as he is always is President Wyatt. Hi Scott. Hello Steve, it's a great day. You and I have, during this particular group of podcasts, been focusing on innovation and we talk about it all the time. We talk about it in our cabinet meetings and um, one of the things that we <laughs> that we have discovered as we talk about it is that uh maybe we should look elsewhere for ideas about innovation because in their natural habitat maybe government agencies are not the most innovative uh <laughs> groups <laughs> so so we are looking around at people who are in our field but also people who are a little bit out of our field looking for ideas and things that have um that have led to change in their industry and the ways that they've adapted or led that change. Anyway, we have two great examples who also happen to be great friends to our university. will not you introduce them?
1: Yes, thank you, Steve. So in finding um, two individuals from outside but inside, we've got two phenomenal multi-serial... Rich, I'm not sure how that's supposed to be said. Serial million entrepreneur so you're serial entrepreneurs
0: (laughs) (laughs) guys who like to start businesses (laughs) and
1: and do a lot of them so we're joined today with rich christensen um hello rich how are you
2: wonderful scott thank you for having me
1: and also alan hall alan
3: welcome gentlemen thank you i'm pleased to be with you today
1: so the two of you have a couple things in common um One, you're both serial entrepreneurs um, who have been exceptionally successful in building new businesses and being creative, and you're also both experienced as trustees, members of board of trustees for two universities, Rich, you with Southern Utah University, and Alan, you with Weber State University, Um, so we think that you know something about us, but your life... Um, business has been outside of higher ed. So thanks for joining us.
2: You're, you're more welcome. We're, we're excited to talk with you today. We are, and we're looking forward to the uh, maybe a little crazy dialogue here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, so um, be a little gentle with us. We, um, we realize that we're such a different culture, but tell us why. Uh, or what we should learn, perhaps that's the best way to answer the question. What does higher education, what, does, what do the colleges and universities in our state and country need to learn from successful entrepreneurs? Rich, why
3: don't you go ahead first? I'll follow up with you on a comment.
2: Well, I have three really quick thoughts, and I stated uh, as we were starting this, one of my favorite statements in life came from a a mentor that I had. Al and I both know this individual really well. It's Ray Norda, and he used to always make the statement, resist change and die, adapt to change and survive, and create change and thrive. And from my experience as an entrepreneur and business creator is when I get too complacent and don't push the change a little bit and actually go to where the value is delivered and actually what the market's really needing and wanting, uh, then I get myself in trouble. And I think that there's times uh, that I've noticed as universities, maybe we hold on a little bit too long to uh, mechanisms and systems and even uh, a curriculum that maybe. Uh, is is a little bit outdated, and sometimes maybe pushing on comfort button just a little bit isn't a bad thing. And then the second thing would just be look for ways to deliver real value, true, meaningful, impactful value, uh, not only to the students, but then also to the marketplace. And anyone that does that is is bound to succeed. Those would be my two comments, Alan. Yeah, terrific, Rich. I, I, I think because
3: of my years of being affiliated with higher ed, I I have begun to recognize that we really, higher ed really is different than a a business enterprise. The way you are structured in higher ed universities and colleges, uh, the history of how uh, these universities came about is far different. It didn't come with a profit motive. Uh, It was based upon educating people and taking them to the next level of knowledge. Whereas business people, we, we do focus on making money to pay bills, uh, keep our shareholders happy, pay back bank loans and, and whatnot. So we are two different creatures. But I, I think what I find rich and president is that uh, we, we live in a world where we both need to focus on what our customers want us to deliver to them. And in this case, I think uh, the businesses or the institutions out there that hire our students, uh, we want to be talking to them because they want us to bring that student to them with the knowledge they want. And then likewise, we need to make sure we understand the needs of the students to deliver to them. So I think if there's a common thread thinking out, if you will, the monetary side of things, uh, and profit, uh, clearly we ought to be thinking about what does our customer want and how can we best deliver to them.
1: Yeah, and who do you, Alan, who do you define as our customer?
3: You know, as I go out and visit with not-for-profits, which in many ways uh, is a university, uh, I find that uh, the not-for-profits miss who the customer is. Uh, They'll think of who they serve, but at the end of the day, let me put it in this form, who pays the bills? That, for me, is the customer. Who, Who buys your product? Well, in the business world, Rich and I have a customer who will buy our product, and we know fully well that's our customer because we've approached them, made an offer, and they buy it. In, in the university setting, who, who's your customer? Who pays your bills? Well, for the most part, it's the legislature uh, who have expectations of delivery. Uh, it's the student and perhaps their parents. Uh, there may be donors a little bit in that mix, but, but if you think about it in a university setting, it, it, those are your customers. How do you take care of the legislature who gives you money, and the same thing with students and parents?
1: Yeah, and it's it's interesting because sometimes when we talk about these um, groups, such as legislators or students in higher education, we have a tendency to say, "But we know this business better than they do." And um, and we know the right way to do it. And we we want them to send us their money, but we don't really want them to follow up.
3: (laughs) You know, and and as we know, it can get institutions of higher education in trouble, too. Right. Uh, Where uh, to your your point, I I think uh, and I'll, I'll go back to a taxpayer because I'm a customer, too, in that I give the legislature the money and I have expectations that my children, my grandchildren, my neighbors, my friends, all get the right education uh, from the money I send to the legislature. So there, there's a, a actually a fairly complex set of customers that you have. And I wonder how often universities, drilling it down even to the faculty themselves, uh, think to talk to the population out there about what uh, what we want. I think we all believe that the the faculty has the wherewithal skills and abilities to deliver. I don't think we want to come in and tell any teacher how to to teach, but we certainly want them teaching what uh, is appropriate uh, for that student at that particular point in time.
0: Yeah, I often think that one of the places that we as faculty run into difficulty is is it's it's one thing to be a content area expert and even to be an expert pedagogue, and understand that that this is not a, a knowledge supermarket. You just can't come in and pick st- things off shelves. But because learning is uh, learning is more brick upon brick than that, you have to have a certain amount of foundational knowledge to understand what comes next. But uh, what we often aren't great at is staying abreast of changes either economical or or social that that make it so that that we need to actually change what we are teaching not not necessarily change the way we deliver it but but either either look at new programs or uh, be re- be more responsive as you suggest to the needs of to customers and of the workplace and and it's very easy for us between um, between be- going to class and and doing you know grading papers and doing research to become fairly insular and and not understand that the world is changing around us very very quickly i i see that in my field and uh, and i'm certain right. that it's a problem yeah. uh, elsewhere and and we're resistant to that change because we we feel like we're the the content experts but maybe the content has changed wh- while we weren't looking and certainly the delivery method may have changed and certainly the way we offer yeah. the programs may have
2: changed yeah I- I really like the the, the discussion of uh, where the value is delivered, and I love the the focus on like uh, deliverables. But I think you've got to go one layer uh, further down the value chain, and, and and that is is not just the graduation rate, but actually what's getting jobs is their success after that fact. And I think too frequently sometimes we even just focus on the students when maybe the influencer and actually the true customer in many instances is actually the parent, the one that's helping pay the tuition, that's looking for an entirely different set of objectives sometimes than even the student. And sometimes there's a little tension in that. So if you go all the way down to, are they getting jobs? Are they sustaining their lives after the fact? Are they able to repay their student loans or do they have the education to actually then advance in the jobs? I think that that's three steps down the value chain, from are they just graduating and getting a degree? Yeah, good point. Let me let me talk a, a little
3: bit, Shane, subject on your competition for a minute, okay? As to content, uh, I live in a world um, in the business side where content has become free to me. I, I can get it anytime and anywhere I want. For the most part, I don't have to pay for it. And when you think about universities being content-laden and driven, You have to think to yourself, uh, is is there a time in the future when people will get that content without having to come to class? So let me give you one example. I I speak uh, uh, five languages, English I'm working on, and I've been learning the (laughs) Romance languages. So I'm taking French right now um, online with a little app called Duolingo. And I'm about to hit my 100th day of an hour each day learning French. And right now it's free. They, obviously, the app wants me to step up and get their premium and start to pay for it. But I'm setting it at my own rate. I'm getting, uh, if you will, grades. I'm learning. I'm getting it all down uh, as to, to my desired level of uh, competency. So think in the future that uh, an employer or a student might not have to have a, a diploma from an institution that is certified, uh, that has been approved by some uh, entity out there, that this is a legitimate grade. What, what should happen down the road when all of a sudden the things that matter in education, higher education, are totally removed one night, or a student gets an education without ever having to go to a campus.
1: Yeah, it changes the way we see things, doesn't it?
3: Yeah. Uh, and, and I, you never know how the world can spin and change, and it can be a tsunami effect uh, that all of a sudden just washes over. And should institutions of higher learning be looking to say, Maybe the model needs to change, not only for survival, but that we're better at, at what we're doing because the world is changing and we can't stay the same and and continue to flourish. Matter of fact, we might be gone if we're not careful.
2: Alan, we saw this uh, exact transformation take place in media back in the early 2000s. We called it the democratization of media. And uh, the result was, as you had three or four large, huge networks where everyone got their information and content from, from a fragmented, you know, now series of very niche, little specialties of information. And my perception is, is the opportunity then it, it, there's still tons of opportunity. It just changes the ma- uh, dramatically because then you have to go and deliver the value in the niches rather than necessarily in big, big, broad strokes like we've been doing. Yeah, um, now I,
3: I recognize the fact that I've got to take a chemistry class. That's not something I can do uh, off of a campus or online. Uh, it's something that needs to be done. Uh, but how, how about, uh, how about Steve, about taking music classes? Is, it, is there something you would look ahead and say, there's a better way to teach music? Uh, is there a better way to train the next teachers in the high schools on I mean, music? what would you look and see as a vision for the future
0: well that's an interesting question and uh, um we we actually had a podcast about this i run a masters degree here in music technology and i'll start by saying that because it's music technology of course it is geared towards an understanding of technology but one of the one of the questions during the approval process that we that all programs go through in the state of utah um that I kept waiting for somebody to ask me, and nobody ever did ask me, was essentially Alan your question, which is, where is the value added if I if if every company makes their own set of tutorial videos, what what are you guys bringing to the table? What what why would I pay you x number of thousands of dollars for a master's degree, even though the cost is low and it's delivered online and it's it's very convenient? Um, what 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 are you bringing to this learning experience? And we were we really were very careful about that. So part of it, part of it in my line of work is is curating what's out there. Um, I think teachers, professors generally become uh, curators of of the other information because there's so much of it available. So let's pick the very, very best of that, and then let's create our own and and then we can we can deliver a class that is sort of a hybrid of of what is readily available along with things that you couldn't get on YouTube no matter how much you searched, which are things like, hey, we're both working uh, in a class on a common project. I'm not just watching somebody, um, you know, I'm not just watching somebody build a fence. I'm actually building a fence with them at the same time. And we're working on a fence that the whole rest of the world is going to look at. Uh, So, so if a a teacher, for example, uh, in our program is working on a film score, um, these, he or she is able to share that with the students in the class and, and say this is what we're working on right now and let's take little sections of it and let's talk about how it was recorded and why don't you make some changes. And and so those are things that we can add an, an expertise, uh, a, 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 uh, a closeness, a connection that that they can't get uh, all one direction from a YouTube video or, or an app. Um, but, but to me that that feels like that has to be the future of of every uh type of of education it it becomes difficult it, as you suggest if the material is free and of higher quality every year and remains free it it becomes very difficult for universities to say um you have to come here because this is where the knowledge lives, and students can say, yeah. uh-uh, it's not where the knowledge lives.
3: no, so you know back to this one point I have that I fear is accreditation is sort of keeps you in the ball game right keeps the university where you where you have value because a diploma, a certificate uh from your institution uh has has that value because I can take that to my employer and say, look, I graduated from SUU, I have a bachelor's degree. What would happen if somebody decided to kill accreditation so that the universities no longer have that? Now, where do you see yourself? What do you do next?
1: Well, if accreditation um, was gone, um, then it would be the reputation of the school. Like any other business. Yeah. It would be yeah. our reputation yeah. is it's why people come and it's why people would hire the graduates. And it may that that may actually be the driving force anyway. Um uh, but but you're pointing out something really interesting, Alan, and that is that in the same way that libraries used to be the source of all information and now you can get it online, the universities used to be the source of information, and now you can get it in lots of places. I, As the two of you were talking, it, it occurred to me that I've been to Gettysburg a number of times, and uh, the first time I went, I read the books, and I had my little self-guided tour, and I could get from A to B and read everything. But when I went back and hired a guide that was trained and certified and knew how to tell the story, um. My motivation in seeing all the places went way up and I learned more and it was fun and there was a social aspect to it that that was much bigger. Um usually when we're doing a, a big project, um it seems that if we make it social it's we have other people to motivate us and keep us going. And that's one of the things that happens in a classroom.
0: Even online.
1: Yeah. And even online. Yep. yep.
2: Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I I mean, I'll go ahead ahead, Alan. Well, I was just going to also make the. I was going to make the comment also. uh, I think there's two main parts of of learning that takes place here. I'm going to now jump to the other side of the equation and actually argue on behalf of the university, because I think indeed there's intellectual capital, the getting smart part of the equation that's vital and critical. But we all know that there's an element that I would argue is even more valuable, and that is is the relationship capital that is developed in the university. And so I think that there's going to fundamentally need to be a place or a venue that promotes and allows individuals not only to work together, but to also build your network out so that you can actually succeed in whatever career field you're in. I know in the instance of my degree, my intellectual knowledge was actually learning valuable, but far more impactful for me was my relationship capital that was gained along the way. And so I think uh, we need to keep that in perspective also from the university that there is an element and a need on some level that I think going forward have campuses and a venue that individuals can gather together and build those bonded relationships that simply can't happen online.
3: You know, Rich, what you're talking about is we are establishing a brand at the university of what we will deliver to the customer, right? Uh, we're going to bring you the high-value, intrinsic information and relationships that you can't get anywhere else. It's it's who we are. It's what we do. Yes, it's going to cost you more than Alan getting that free duolingual French lesson. But you're gonna at the university you're gonna have all these other wonderful attributes that we'll provide to you. And the the universities now look to the future about they're they're not a commodity anymore. They are now a very valuable, value added place to learn, to grow, to develop. And will universities then see themselves in a different light than they have where they just delivered, we'll say, historically content. I'd love love your thoughts on on that.
1: Yeah, the um, let me let me take that a step sideways, perhaps. Um, this is one of the, and I'm not sure if I'm answering your question or asking another question, Alan. But um, if the content itself is available for free, and that's what we're delivering, um, and we're also delivering a set of soft skills the ability to work as a team and all those kinds of things. And um, and we're also delivering mentors. Um, so maybe there's content, which is hard skills, and then maybe there's soft skills, the ability to work with others, and then maybe there's mentors and relationships and all this capital that you talked about, Rich. The more content becomes free, the more we in higher education perhaps have to really focus on these other two things, which are the soft skills and the mentorship and relationship.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, uh, and I think if you take that, yes, really a good point, President. Uh, I think that uh, if you also take a very specific and niche and concrete examples, uh, nursing, for example, I'm not sure that I would want a nurse ever just going and learning it online and then firing it up in the hospital. So there has to be a <laughs> level of, you know, uh, right. How about the airplane uh, a mechanic school president at your university? I'm not sure that the content alone to ever enough of that. I kind of actually want someone watching over sho- a shoulder, watching, hand holding, ensuring that that's taking place uh, properly. So, you know, as I talked about the democratization of media, I think that there will be a level of democratization of higher education that occurs. And uh, the result was, is the value is still there. Uh, And opportunities for higher education institutions, it will just be more in the niches, exactly like it has become in media. Alan, what are your thoughts of that?
3: Well, you know, I'm just thinking about I've been teaching uh, as an adjunct professor classes in sales and entrepreneurship. And uh, I, I actually found that the students enjoyed the way I brought them the content, but because they could have read all of the content, if you think, online. They could There's so much out there on entrepreneurship, but uh, certainly a university's got no, no uh, handle on that and doesn't own that. But what, what I found was back to, I then mentored the students. I worked with them. I helped them put their plans together. Uh, I was critical of things. I helped them with things. Uh, I took my uh, assignment to a higher level than just delivering plain content. And I think President, that's sort of where, where your mind went is uh, it's some of the soft things It's some of the things that you can't get but it's human interaction at the highest level to help a student get the information they need in in a way that's not just looking at it online. And if universities go that way, they're going to be around forever. Uh, If they just want to stay and compete on content, that's a slippery slope.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that um, our accreditors, Northwest, doesn't even ask us if students are getting jobs.
0: Yeah, they're they're considering that right now as they change their policy going forward. Should we ask a question about that? And of course, the answer is yes.
1: We're we're tracking that, it. It's, that, it's terribly important that,
0: to that's
2: us. That's actually a little concerning.
0: Yeah. Well, um, well, we track it. We do track it, but but we're not answer. required to report it.
2: Yeah. Uh, could I well, just take one little step st- step sideways on this conversation that I think is actually relevant? And I think President kind of addressed it when. Alan hit that first question, and that was as one of reputation. But I think there's two parts to decision-making. There's left left hemisphere brain thinking, and then there's right hemisphere brain thinking. And although we logically back up a lot of our left hemisphere brain brain thinking in the form of am I learning, did I get the material? There's also a huge element of driving of of right hemisphere, which is, is the community wanting to belong. The visceral response, so you get to someone and you say, I graduated from this university. That community element is also, I think, a major driving factor and force of, of higher education. You look at the, the identity that individuals be belong and pick your school of being part of that university. And, and that's something that actually is tangible and real and uh, should be considered in the discussion. Because that need of as humans to, as we kind of fragment into societies, We're going to need to have that sense of community, and universities are one of the strongest uh, align points that that occurs.
3: Let let me uh, talk about one other topic that's always been on my mind, and it has to do with uh, the cost and the speed of getting an education. Um, Clearly, in in our world, um, we want to get through our education as quickly as we can, get that job you know, be out there teaching music. We want to get through the, the coursework as quickly as we can, as inexpensively as we can. What, President, would be your thinking around changes that might accelerate and be less expensive?
1: So we're in the middle of a project on this right now, Alan, and um, we'll see how it goes. But the uh, the first part of this answer is that um, we're trying to turn our school into a three-year bachelor's program. Yeah,
3: which, wonderful.
1: Which requires students and faculty and staff to see the world a little differently than what they've known at their whole lives, which is mm. if you take the last year, which is two semesters, and if the student would take those two semesters, one after the freshman year and one after the sophomore year, you get the same amount of instruction You're talking about Um, summer semesters. Summers, Mm -hmm. yep. So you just do three semesters for three years. And, um, well, three semesters, the first and second year, and then two, and you end up with your eight semesters. Um, And actually, it's probably even better than just being a year faster because there is a loss that students experience during the four-month summer break that they go back a little bit and they have to catch back up to where they were. So we're, we're trying to make a three-year bachelor's degree available and putting a lot of effort. That's one. The other one of course is online. Um, And uh, we have a partnership with Southwest tech and they start school every Monday. So students can come in and start when they want and finish when they want. And, we haven't figured out how, how we could take a semester and speed a semester up unless it's online. But yeah. the in-class is, is a challenge. But these are the kinds of things that that we should be focusing on is how do we fundamentally step up what we're doing.
0: And, and a great example of holding on to something that is time-honored tradition clear back to when we were a largely agrarian society Everybody needed summer off to, you know, to grow the crops and get them in, but nobody, you know, I mean, there are places in the world where that's still a thing, but, mm-hmm. but everybody else in the world works 12 months a year. And, yeah. um, yeah. Uh, so we, we are following a, a very antiquated model necessarily, uh, uh, yeah. by just having the traditional school year. It, it isn't, it isn't that it doesn't have some advantages there. There are great things to, uh, to having the summer off. But but students do tend to slide backwards a little bit academically because of the mm-hmm. long break.
3: Well, my compliments to you, President. Uh, it's wonderful to hear uh, where you're headed with that. And, uh, if I layer in with my grandchildren who are graduating from high school and they do concurrent enrollment, it seems like they're almost sophomores by the time they hit the university.
0: Yeah,
1: that's Which, right.
3: Uh, again, is a, a way for them to save time and, and money as well, isn't it?
1: Yes, most of our students show up as a first semester's freshman with already having taken a number of credits have that. Yeah. We, one of our biggest struggles, though, frankly, in helping students graduate quickly is, that, is, is the large percentage of them that show up not knowing what their major is to be. They haven't, yeah. they haven't made a yeah. decision yet. That's the hardest thing. Right. Um, and then we as yeah. humans like to change our minds from time to time.
3: Yeah. <laughs> well, I started out as a dentist and it didn't last but I think a couple of hours, so I moved on quickly. <laughs> <laughs>
1: what um what do you two see? That being in the private sector but also being um connected to universities as board of trustee members, if the world was perfect and you could, you know, throw your wand in a direction, what would you have us do? What do you think we should be tr- looking at?
3: Oh.
2: Good question.
3: You know, I'll, 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 I'll take a stab at it because obviously we're not in that perfect world, but uh, uh, I'll start with a thought about the role of the president. Uh, as a visionary, as a CEO of an entity that is might be out of business in the future and that president is looking ahead, talking to potential customers, customers like what do we need to be doing to keep you happy in the years to come? Um, I, I think president would be where, for me, it would be a fun exercise for a faculty to do as well. It would be to get out of whiteboard and, and go through and look at look at all the fundamentals that make up uh, an academic environment, and the staff, the support, all all of the things that come into play with the faculty, uh, the the regents, everybody who has certain things, and and take each one and say what could we incrementally do to make this better, faster, and cheaper, and to keep our customers happy. What would that look like if we did that across all these uh, many of them have to combine. Uh, they, they do uh, have to integrate as well, so you have to think broadly, but I would think it would be a fun and exciting thing to do, take that approach. To, we're going to be different 10 years from now, and here's what we're going to look like.
1: In, in some ways, it'd be fun to get three or four or five or six or eight entrepreneurs like the two of you to come down and just rebuild us. No, it, yeah. it, it would make everybody terrified. It would oh, make yeah. everyone <laughs>
0: terrified. scare everybody to death. Well,
2: but. Uh, but, but, President, in many regards, you've already been doing that. And I, I, you asked that question. I came up with uh, three thoughts, and the first you've already started to do, and that's removing barriers. Some of the Holy Grail barriers need to be broken down so it becomes delivering value for the students, this uh, merger that you did with Southwest Tech. I mean, it was unheard of that you could pull that off. But yet look at and why was that done? It was the right thing to do for the students. And so I think that removing those barriers in many regards, uh, what I've seen, you've already began to do that. My second item is just simply deliver value. If you focus on really truly delivering value, whatever that end user is, I would argue it's actually equally as the parents as as the students uh, would would be my my second. And I think the third is an employer. Um, and I know this may not be the ultimate customer, but in some ways it is, is that I would love to see real-life projects taking place in the classroom rather than just all the theoretical. So actually integrating uh, uh, employers and businesses earlier into the classroom so that uh, students are coming out just a little bit more uh, well-honed to start the job quicker. There always seems to be a pretty lo- long lag of re-educating my. Employees when they come in. Those would be my three: break down the barriers, add value, yeah. more value, and uh, more integrated learning.
1: We've spent uh, the last several years working on project-based learning, and um, and it's not easy. Um, interestingly enough, and this this is one of those real challenges that we have is that students arrive at our universities having never really done anything except respond you know the teacher says read this memorize that respond to that finish these problems but students haven't really been tasked with going out on their own and just being creative and then having somebody help them and and we have this uh, project based requirement at SUU and and it's it's a struggle for students to yeah, for the it. first
0: time they have to they have to propose what they will do instead of yeah. just responding.
1: But I think Rich you're going a level deeper than this because um I think what you're saying is is that it needs to be more part of the whole university, that there should be more of this in every class. Well, well
2: um, I actually think it, it enhances multiple aspects, President. The first is is you're getting, I mean I've been invited several times down to teach several classes and I get in and I see who's performing and they help me solve a little problem, a real problem, not a theoretical problem. And guess who I'm instantly hiring? Guess who I'm interested in, you know?
3: Cool, cool, cool. So
2: it, it, it actually, that, as I pointed out earlier, I always look at the value chain. How can I go deeper to add real value? And it just jumpstarts that process. So I I think that more integration Mm -hmm. into real life world experiences and even bringing more working professionals in as part of that. And I'm not proposing that it's just working professionals because the the academics, they they know how to teach and, and structure learning far better than us, you know, lay individuals. But there's an element that I think engaging real world sooner in the process could be of tremendous value to a university.
3: Let, let me uh, add to what's been going on. This has been an exciting conversation for me and grateful for the opportunity to participate. Uh, I think we, we cannot forget what public education should be thinking about in this regard as well. Uh, those students that come, come to SUU have come out of uh, you know, the local school districts uh, through the high schools all the way down to the elementary schools and uh, having sort of a cohesive plan from preschool all the way through graduation, where, where all of it's lined up in a very cohesive way, Urban understands the goals and objectives that are set for the faculty and the students. So by the time a student graduates from the local high school, they come to SU. They've they've learned to be creative. They've learned to be problem solvers. They they've learned to tackle difficulties. They uh, sort of we bring them along beyond just rote memorization. We've got them thinking, and the, the schools, obviously in elementary, junior high, and high school, they, they have challenges with discipline and other things to help students learn, but you'd think that the universities and the districts could be a little tighter on how they work together.
1: Yeah, this goes back to the breaking down barriers that you mentioned as well, Rich. Yeah. We've created... Yeah, the- and I- We've created these alliances where we meet um, but there is a governing body and an organization for public ed up through K, up through 12th grade and then there's an organization governing bodies for the technical schools separate completely separate and then there's the higher ed for the college and universities completely separate. So in Utah we have three different systems and um, they naturally um, aren't in the same room. We We have to Work hard to collaborate fully, and and I think that in a lot of ways we're doing a terrific job. But it's not completely natural.
2: Well, you had made a comment earlier that you aren't natural entrepreneurs, and I would actually disagree with that in many regards, as I have observed many of the things that you're doing down at Southern Utah University. I would argue it's entrepreneurship at its finest. You have this little project called the Shark Tank where you run 10 little initiatives and fund them and guardrail them. That's hardcore entrepreneurship, uh, which you've done with the business programs. <laughs> entrepreneurship, the, the uh, creativity that's taken place in the, uh, the aviation programs, so much entrepreneurship there. And I realize that maybe it's just pockets of it, but I actually think that there is an opportunity and, and you're doing a pretty darn good job. Of, of pushing these boundaries and adding value and using creative entrepreneurial efforts, President. Uh, I, I'm, I'm delighted to be part of the university.
1: Well, that's nice of you to say. We're about out of time, and I have a question for um, both of you. And, uh, and that is, if you could change one thing, what would it be about higher education? As entrepreneurs, is, is there something that you would change
0: and don't be afraid to say whatever you think it is. Yeah, you won't hurt our feelings. Are you going first, Alan, or
2: am I?
3: Well, if you're rich, if it's on the on the tip of your tongue, go for it.
2: Uh, for me, and and again, I say this delicately because I realize the need for structure and stability. But for for me, it honestly would be tenure. Uh, I expect as a business owner and and owner and whatever to show up every day and add and really contribute value and be sharp. And I don't expect to actually hold my position long term as a CEO or even as a business owner, if I'm not really sharp and aware. And so to me, the, the concept of of tenure, uh, although I understand institutionally where it came from, uh, I struggle a little bit with the concept of, of sometimes maybe deaccelerating production and performance.
1: So, um, this is one of those things that we often hear from people in the private sector, that tenure is a problem. And we could probably argue that both ways, um, seeing the the strong tradition and how that helps us and also maybe some of the weaknesses. But the reality is that as long as all of the good universities have tenure, um, we have to have tenure in order to recruit great faculty. That's one of our... Um, one of just the absolute uh, obvious right. pieces of this. Right. You just don't get around it. So um, we don't ever think about doing away with tenure because um, to the extent that it helps us be a better school, just because of the what that means for faculty is one thing. But from the other thing, we can't attract good faculty without
3: it. Richard, you're, uh, you're spot on relative to uh, workers in any institution they have to perform and uh, maybe maybe uh, there's a different wrinkle around tenure uh, that might be considered. So we, we always have the best teachers, uh, the best faculty, the best staff. We, we want to make sure we're, we've got the best people on our bus, right? Uh, I, I look at it this way, uh, President, in that you have a desire to, to look ahead And I would just say, continue with it. Uh, I would encourage you to do the things you're doing, to reach out, to gather as much information and counsel as you can, because clearly SUU is a magnificent institution. It's doing remarkable things. Can it get incrementally better? Can it compete in the big world out there? It sure can. So I would look to you to just continue to drive forward looking to see the things that you can do to to make the place even better. Uh, That would be my final thought.
1: We're going to have, we think we're going to have some leadership from the Utah legislature on soon and ask them the kinds of similar questions. But one of them that undoubtedly will come up during that conversation is performance-based funding that, um, and and mm-hmm. performance based funding is good and bad. It terrifies us in some ways, and it excites us in other ways. Um, because uh, we can't always control the kind of students that come in, and and if if we get rewarded based on graduation rates, then there's a a tendency to think, well, we only want to bring people into the university that are likely to finish. And one of our values is is to be open for everyone to come in and. Take chances on people. Give give students an opportunity to come and fail, but but aside from all little difficulties, uh, this is kind of sort of like the profit motive that you experience every day. If we're funded well, based well, on outcomes, yes. are those things that you yeah. think we should be looking at seriously? You know,
3: I'll, I'll give you an observation. Um, legislature likes that because, uh, again, they've got pressure, uh, and they're exerting that back onto the schools. Uh, I look at it and would say, uh, President, as you described, and Steve, as you described, we're, we're not really handpicking these students and bringing them in. We're, we're, the doors are open. Anybody can come, and it, and it means to me that there are going to be uh, exceptional students. It's sort of a bell curve You're going to have some bright ones. You're going to have some that really aren't all together yet. And and part of that is for those that need help, mentoring, tutoring, uh, you may need to ask for money to say, well, if you're going to expect these things of us, we probably need some money to help those underperforming students. Or we see what you're trying to accomplish, but there needs to be some other resources that support your objective. And we would like to be very clear on we can hit these, but we also need other resources as well.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. It, it's almost... I'd like to
2: shoot. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, no, please go ahead. Finish that thread.
1: So it's almost as if you could say, this is, I don't know that this would ever be possible, but you say, well, okay, this is the category of students, and they happen to be 50% of our students who are coming in, and they're totally prepared. And so, um, fund us based on their performance. But then here's the other half of the students, and those students are unprepared. But, but because of the social value, we we want to bring them in and give them a chance. And and the performance-based funding for them might should be different than from the other group, so as not to give us a disincentive. Yeah. Anyway, there, this yeah, is I, this is really an interesting topic. I think we uh, could talk about that. Uh, for an hour.: uh,
2: If I could make one comment here is as entrepreneurs, and I think of business owners, our natural action is always going to be yes to that question. Yes, you should be compensated or funded based on performance, but there are really two, at least two major differences between uh, what Alan and I do and what you do. First of all, is we get to decide the employees that we get and screen and vet them out. And so uh, although we're ultimately accountable and we live or die on a daily basis, we eat or starve to death on a daily basis, we at least kind of get to pick and have more control, even to the point we can fire people, and you can't do that with – Many, you know, if uh, underperforming tenured faculty is in place, or even students. So that's one. And then, second of all, is is just a layer of buffering of the political moving mechanisms present. I believe you uh, made the comment that everybody thinks that they get to ultimately make the decision, and so ultimately, Alan and I can operate a little more lean and quickly and execute judgment. So I think that those two disparities, you know, do alter the the framework and maybe. Uh, desirability of it all ultimately being performance-based.
1: Well, we're about out of time. Any, uh, any closing comments about this? This has been a lot of fun. We've talked about focusing on customers and the content and what we're adding in addition to content, and perhaps we need to focus increasingly more on that since content is available uh, for free in a lot of places. So the mentoring and internships and social soft skills, all of those kinds of things. We've talked about breaking down barriers, better, faster, cheaper, adding value, um, doing more projects to help people be more prepared for the workforce. And and then into this, um, the, some of these uh, uniquely entrepreneurial business kinds of ideas that, that, um, that, as you've indicated, um, are a little bit in disharmony with with regular government secure employment. And then also uh, funding from the legislature based on outcomes. Every one of these could make a an interesting hour discussion. Any closing uh, thoughts?
3: Th- th- yeah. uh, I just thank you for the opportunity to weigh in and <laughs> your openness and desires to, to do great things. So Thank you for uh, the invitation to participate.
2: Yes, thank you so much.
0: You've been listening to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring Scott Wyatt, the president of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. We've had as our guests today, joining us via phone, Rich Christensen and Alan Hall, two very successful entrepreneurs who are also great friends to the academy. And we thank them for their kind participation today. And we thank you, our listeners, for tuning in. We'll be back again soon. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Solutions for Higher Education. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's Podcast, where you will find both the audio and a written transcript of today's podcast. The original music for this podcast was composed by Jack Barton, a master's degree student in music technology at SUU. For more information about Southern Utah University, please visit www.suu.edu.